Paul teaches us how to be bright, shining lights for the glory of Christ. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, welcome everybody. Is it ever good to see the place starting to fill up again? Good to have you back. Let's just say thank you, Lord. We have to celebrate these sorts of things, folks, because this has been a long, long time since we've had this many people in our auditorium, so my heart's full of joy this morning. So this morning, we are uh, carrying on in the book of Philippians. <clears throat> Let me show you this picture. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a fight that broke out in, well, it's called Christianity's Most Holiest Site in Jerusalem. And uh, this is uh, back in 2008. And it says here that the Israeli police rushed into one of Christianity's holiest churches and arrested two clergymen after an argument between an Armenian and a Greek Orthodox monk broke out. Pretty weird, eh? Well, the monk who gave his name as Seraphim, and I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Seraphim means angel. (laughs) He said... (laughs) He said he sustained a wound when an Armenian monk punched him from behind and broke his glasses. Praise the Lord. The brawling began during a procession of Armenian clergymen commemorating the fourth century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. While the Greeks objected to the march without one of their monks present, fearing that otherwise the procession would undermine their own claim to the shrine, Believing, believed to be Jesus' tomb, and thus it would give the Armenians first claim to the site. So there's a, a real rival, rivalry going on here. So when they tried to march, the Greek Orthodox monks, they blocked their way, and that sparked the fight. All of this in the name of Jesus. Well, we quickly look at this and we recognize how utterly absurd this is, that this sort of thing would be happening in in a church, in the name of Jesus. Absolutely absurd. The newspaper article, obviously having a lot of fun reporting this, decided they would report a few more things while they're at it. And they, said, and they basically said, oh, and by the way, there's a ladder that's been placed on a ledge over the entrance sometime in the 19th century. That's back in the 1800s. It has never been taken down. It has remained there ever since because... There's a dispute between the two groups over who has the authority to take that ladder down. The ladder was put up to fix something. They just left it because nobody could, nobody could decide who had the authority to actually take that ladder down. 
obviously the newspaper's having a ball with this, and they go on to tell another story. And this is all one, one newspaper story. More recently, a spat between the Ethiopian and the Coptic Christians is, is, uh, shows, that them, shows them behaving badly. Uh, there is a, a section of the, of the church that needs renovation because a rooftop in the monastery, it looks like it's about to collapse, but they can't fix it until the Ethiopian Christians and the Coptic Christians, till they make up their minds. And then the newspaper article added one more thing. It's not related to this fight at all, but here's what they say. The Israeli government has long wanted to build a fire exit into the church, which regularly fills with thousands and thousands of pilgrims and has only one main door. Some of us have actually been to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, and there's only one little door to get in. And the Israeli government is, is very concerned that if a fire broke out, everybody would be trapped in there. But here's the problem. None, none of the denominations can agree on where that door should be put. So to this day, if you go in that church and a fire breaks out, there's a good chance you're not coming out of that church. It'll be your burial place as well. So here's the thing, folks. When the world looks at this, here's the Greek Orthodox and here's the Armenian, these, these two Christian groups. When the church looks at that, what do they think? Or when the world looks at that, what do they think about the church? You've heard it said that religion is the source of all wars. Uh, Matthew White, in his book, The Great Big Book of Horrible Things, says that religion has been the primary cause of 11 of the world's 100 deadliest atrocities. Now, when he says religion, he's not just saying Christianity. He's talking about all religions. But the fact is, is that Christianity and Christians should not ever be numbered amongst those who are fighting and brawling. Would you say amen to that? When people see Christ followers, people who claim to be Christians behaving like that, what is their response? They're all a bunch of, yeah, they're all, it's all fake. It's, none of it is real. Christianity is bogus. Well, the Apostle Paul wants us as Christians to live as bright lights in what he calls this, this uh, crooked and perverse generation. Carl Barth, one of uh, arguably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, he said this of all the epistles of the New Testament, that every one of them is dealing, is dealing with some kind of a, a church fight or a church problem. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you, you're sort of uh, investigating, maybe you're with us online this morning and you're, you want to find out more about Christianity, you hear me say this and you think, aha, just as, I, just as I thought, it's all bogus. Well, let me just quickly remind you of something. As long as you've got two people on this planet, there's going to be politics and there's going to be fighting. Everybody understand that? Because that's who we are. We are self-centered by nature. And if you're self-centered and I'm self-centered, guess what happens? A fight breaks out. That's what happens all the time. And this is the point of Christianity. This is the point of the gospel, is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are transformed. Now, we are concerned not about loving myself. And by the way, some people say, well, I can't love others until I first love myself. That's utter nonsense. It's not in the Bible. It's what one theologian calls neo-paganism. Your, your, your problem is not that you don't love yourself enough. The problem is that you love yourself too much. And everybody said, well, a few people would say amen to that. 
That is our problem, isn't it? This is our big problem. We love ourselves too much. And even when we think we don't love ourselves, the way you live your life betrays the truth about you. You and I, by nature, are self-centered, and we do put ourselves first. So the problem is not I need to have more self-esteem and love myself more. What, what needs to happen is you need to be transformed. Some, some years ago, we had a, a pastor. He was reading a book, and the book was called uh, Renovating the Old You. Can I just remind you of something? There's no renovation of the believer. Do you understand that? Christ has not come to renovate you. You, Christ has come that you would die and that you would be a brand new creation, a brand new creature. The old you is passed away. It's gone. It's dead. It's buried. And that's why we go through the act of baptism, to bury you so that the old you is dead. We're not renovating anything. You're not here trying to improve yourself or fix yourself. What needs to happen is you have to die to yourself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's transformative. So, wherever you see two humans, there's going to be politics, there'll be fights breaking out. And this is why Jesus says about people who've come to follow him, he says this in John 13, 35. By by this, love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our love and our care and our concern for one another is the proof, is the evidence that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. A true follower of Jesus Christ cannot hold a grudge. Everybody gets that. Now, that doesn't mean that once in a while you might not get angry, but you've got to deal with that mighty quick and get back to loving that person who really ticked you off. Anybody ever here get, get ticked off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray, I can hear you, man. You're... You really get ticked off. <laughs> of course we all do, don't we? Now, this is, this, is, this is part of what it is to be human. But what it is to be Christian is that you forgive and you love that person, even if they annoy you or annoyed you. Get it? Got it. Excellent. Okay, so Jesus makes it clear to us that our love for each other is the evidence that we are Christians, that we belong to God. In fact, Jesus, in his, in his prayer before going to the cross, John 17, you can read about that. Jesus is saying exactly the same thing. Father, the way that you and I are one, I'm praying that the disciples will be one and they'll be one with us. What's the picture? The picture is, a, it's a beautiful picture of unity, of love for one another. And so this is what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is driving at when he says in Philippians 2, 14 to 15. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. How many know that the world is full of crooked and perverse people? Some of you aren't sure of that. Pastor, that sounds rather judgmental. Well, look, at, don't shoot the messenger. I'm not the one that said it. The Apostle Paul said it. Look, anybody without Christ is twisted. And, well, he said it, perverse. This is the, this is the, the wonder of the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus transforms us. He changes us. 
He makes it possible for us to live clean, innocent lives as children of God. He makes it possible for us to live without complaining and arguing. What's Paul alluding to here when he talks about shining like bright lights in a world? I believe he's referring to what, Paul, what Daniel says in Daniel chapter uh, 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. You see, unwise, foolish Christians are the ones who are divisive. They're the ones who are always complaining about something and always arguing. Now, I've been in the ministry for a very long time. A very, very long, long, long time. And I can tell you that for the most part, it's been a real delight. But I can tell you the things that have caused me the most stress are those so-called foolish Christians who are always complaining and always arguing, always debating, they're always grumbling, they're always, they're always attacking, they're always critiquing. The Apostle Paul tells us plainly that that should not be. So when, when the Apostle Paul is, is referencing this this complaining and this arguing, he's obviously referencing the children of Israel as they're going through the wilderness. And what do we find about the children of Israel as they're going through the wilderness? They start grumbling and complaining against Moses, against the leadership, against those who are, who are called by God to lead God's people. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is not something I chose for myself. Anybody who says, I want, I want a career in the ministry, you're out of your mind. They don't pay you enough to take on the grumbling and the complaining and, and, and the difficulties that we face in the ministry for, for the hours that we work. Most of us pastors work far more than 40 hours a week. Uh, the ones who are really hardworking are working 50 and 60 hours a week, constantly on the phone, talking to people, counseling, counseling people, helping people, doing whatever we can. So Paul, no doubt, is referencing that. And I'm, and I'm wondering if this is the problem. Remember I talked about Evodia and Sintihi last week? We, we talked about them from further on in the letter uh, in, in chapter 4. They're, they're having this fight, and Paul's addressing the division that's been caused by these two women. And some scholars believe that the arguing and the complaining is amongst these women and their factions in the church, and that they're probably grumbling and complaining against those who are called to give leadership in the church. It's probably why, uh, this is the only letter where Paul does this, where he it brings his salutations and then singles out the deacons and the elders. Uh, this is what we're thinking. And so we, we got a problem because people are, uh, don't like authority. They don't want to follow. They don't want to be told where to go, what to do, or how to do it. How many understand that? Anybody got kids here? Anybody with, with children? You know what it's like. There's always, there's always resistance. There's always pushback. That's who we are. By nature, we're self-centered. We push back. We complain. We argue. And somehow, someway, in the power of Jesus Christ and with the message of the gospel, God brings all these self-centered creatures together and he creates a family. And he calls this family the church. Folks, the, the church is a, is a miracle. The church is an utter miracle. 
And it's even more miraculous when all these people come together from different backgrounds, from different, different nations, different religions, different, different upbringing, different socioeconomic levels. You, God brings them all together, and they love each other. Poof. No wonder Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. Because by, by, in the natural mind, there's no way that that should happen. But here we are. We are... We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you see now how utterly important it is that you and I live as true Christians. Not nominal Christians, nominal meaning in name only, but true Christians who truly love one another, who truly put others first. And by the way, can I just tell you this? As Christians, where does it start? It doesn't start in the church. It starts right in your own home with your own wife, with your own husband, with your own children. And it continues on in the workplace, the people that you're working with or working for. It continues on in your neighborhood. You should be known by your love for others. You should be known as the one who never complains and never argues. And Paul says, and why is that? So that no one can criticize you. So that no one can criticize the church. In the last, in the last uh, 15 years, there has been so much terrible, terrible media about the church because of people who claim that they're leaders of the church, they claim to be pastors, they claim, claim to be priests or leaders or whatever, and their behaviors have, have not reflected Christ in any way, shape, or form. And it, in fact, it more clearly reflects Satan than it does Jesus. And so Paul is making it clear to us that we as Christians, we need to be shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. God forbid that you and I would fall under that category of the crooked and the perverse. So you and I are called then to love one another and to put others first. Well, Fights have been the bane of the church for 2,000 years. It's caused misery for 2,000 years. And there's, there's no shortage of literature that deals with it. Some people think that having a critical spirit is a virtue. I'm, I'm, God has appointed me. I've got the gift of critiquing the pastor. I've got the gift to... My job is to keep everybody unsteady and to make sure everybody minds their P's and Q's. Listen, there's no gift like that in the Bible. That's not a gift, my friends. In fact, I believe it's a curse. And by the way, it's not just critiquing or being critical of the pastor, but it's being critical of one another. Isn't that what we're guilty of doing too often? And we have no business critiquing or being critical of others. That's not our place. I remember a, a man from the last church, or well, the church I grew up in, and whenever, whenever one of the younger pastors preached, he felt that it was his job to go and tell the pastor all the mistakes he made. And he thought he was hilarious. He, he, he was telling me, telling me this. And he just thought he was, he was absolutely 
the greatest comedian that ever went to that church. He says, oh yeah, when he's done that, I start telling him you used too many quotes and you, you, you lost your train of thought and you got mixed up and he just destroyed the poor guy after having preached a sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like this guy is a tool of Satan, not, not a, a messenger from God. And yet this is how some of us are. We, we feel it's our job to criticize, to critique, I got to be the official opposition. This is why we changed our our constitution, because for so many years in so many churches and so many churches still, the board believes it's their job to rein the pastor in and to be the official opposition. I thank God that the elders we have are all on board and saying, "Let's go. Let's move ahead. What does God want us to do? Let's get the job done." And the staff are the same. Let's get the job done. Let's work together. Let's encourage one another. What I love so much about Don Davidson, he's the the greatest encourager I have ever known in my entire life. And some of you have experienced that encouragement from that dear brother. And he's one of our elders. Wow. So here's the thing, folks. You and I need to be wise. We need to live clean and innocent lives as children of God. What's the evidence that you're a child of God, that you love others, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people? Now, the question is this, folks. How do we do this? How do we live as bright lights? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question, because I'm going to answer that question. How do we do it? Well, first of all, Paul says, therefore, dear friends. Now, you'll notice I put therefore in there, because in Greek, there is a therefore. And whenever there's a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. So we'll answer that in a moment. But first of all, let's read the verse, a verse that you will probably recognize. He says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it's even more important because I can't be there to correct you. You've got to start thinking on your own and start acting like adults. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Some of you maybe learned that verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now here's what so many, so many people misinterpret in this verse. They believe it's about obedience and a way of earning your salvation. How many know today you can't earn your salvation? Yeah. Everybody knows that? You have to know that. Yeah. You, there's, you can't be good enough to win God's favor. That won't work. Okay. Now, now we're talking the gospel here. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we put our faith in Christ and we receive his righteousness. That's what we need. And the good news is that, is that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, yeah, praise God. And so this is, this is what this is about. It's all about you and I living our lives in a way that we are actually living out our salvation. You remember a few weeks ago, we were in Philippians chapter 1, in verse, uh, verse 11. It's, this, is, this is the gist of what this means. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by whom? By Jesus Christ. Look, at, you don't produce righteousness. Jesus Christ produces that righteousness in you. Get it? Why do, we still, why do we still carry on this legalistic path where I've got to be good enough and I've got to do all the right things in order to win favor with God? You can't. You won't. It can't happen. And this is why 
so many people go through the go through the uh, that that cycle. You you they say I gave my heart to Jesus, but then I sinned and I backslid, and then I have to get saved again. I was listening to a talk show and. Uh, people were able to phone in and listen to the answers given by the theologians. And one woman phoned in, she said, I've been saved 15 times. I'm really getting tired of it. What, what's going on? <laughs> well, look at folks. Nobody needs to be saved 15 times. You can only be saved once. And this is why at this church, we stress the importance of true conversion. You don't just say a sinner's prayer and that's it. We're talking about a transformation that is supernatural, that is truly, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter three, it's truly a mystery how this works. I'm gonna share with you in just a few moments a testimony of a young man who, who was saved miraculously in, in the power of God without saying a sinner's prayer. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with saying a sinner's prayer, but folks, that, that's not a magical formula that you say these magical incantation, these magical words, and poof, you're a Christian. We're talking about a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life that transforms you and makes you a new believer. So, Jesus is calling us to live a life where we love one another, to live a life that produces the fruit of that salvation. Now, can I remind everybody, the only way that you can produce this fruit is if you abide in Christ. This is what, this is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He tells us to abide in the vine, to abide in Christ, to stay connected to Christ. We produce this fruit of our salvation by being connected to Christ, by having a daily walk with God. That's the best and easiest way to talk about it. So now I said we were going to talk about the therefore. What is it therefore? Well, if you go back to the verses before that, we talked about this last week in verses 5 to 11, it talks about the humiliation of Jesus. We see his humility in heaven, and then he's born in, 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 a, in great humble circumstances, born, uh, some say born in a barn, but born in, in a in a feed trough. This is the king of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He comes to this earth and he's born in the most humiliating circumstances. And then he dies in the most humiliating way. Some of you, or most of us, have seen crucifixes. The crucifix is a cross with Jesus on it and he always has a loincloth. My friends, that's not how they crucified people. If you were crucified, you, were, you hung naked on a cross to be laughed at, to be mocked, to be humiliated. And this is what, this is what Paul tells us about Christ, the, humili the humiliation. Now, here's what Paul's saying here. If Jesus can humble himself in order to serve you and me in this great and actually uh, mind-boggling way, if he could go through this humiliation, how much more can you and I humble ourselves and put others first? This is what it means to be a Christian. You humble yourself and you serve others. Remember we talked about the disciples refusing to wash each other's feet and Jesus puts on the, a towel like a slave 
and gets on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. This is true Christianity, my friends. And by the way, it begins in your home. You, you serve your spouse. You serve your brother. You serve your sister. You serve your parents. Imagine the, the, the household, the family, that the only fights that break out are over who gets to serve whom. <laughs> it's my turn to set the table. No, it's my turn to cook food. It's my turn to take out the garbage. No, it's my turn. This is a picture that, that Paul is drawing for us. That kind of of humble service of one another. I know there's people who come to church and we ask them, well, would you mind working in the parking lot? Oh no, I've got greater gifts than that. That's, I'm, I'm too important for that. Really, what, what would you like to do? Well, I, would, I wouldn't mind preaching once in a while. <laughs> okay, well then I'll serve in the parking lot and you preach. And by the way, if I were not a pastor, I think that would be where I would be serving, is in the parking lot greeting at people, waving at people, inviting people in, and, and saying, I'm glad to see you. Thank you, Bill, because that's what Bill does. Hallelujah. And Bill with a walker. He's the only parking lot, church parking lot attendant I have ever known that has to use a walker <laughs> while he's taking care of the parking lot. God bless you, man. God bless you. This is what true service is. Therefore, if Jesus can do this, if Jesus can humble himself, and there's nothing, nothing that could be lower than death, even death on a cross. This is the extent of Christ's humiliation. So here's the thing. Fights break out in church. Fights break out in families. Fights break out in marriages because of arrogance and self-centeredness. That's why it happens. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. It's just two people who are just too full of themselves. Think about that. Think of every fight that you've ever had. Somebody is being extremely self-centered, and it's probably not just one. As the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. Right? But you see, we're Christians. And now Paul is saying, you need to work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Now, can I just remind everybody of something? Because I don't want anybody going away from here thinking, well, if I'm just good enough, then I'll be a good Christian. No, 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 no. I already told you. It's by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. You, you produce this for, by Jesus Christ, by being in Christ. If you are not praying and reading your Bible every day, if you're not staying connected to, to God, you cannot produce this, this fruit of, of your salvation. You cannot, you cannot produce the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence. You know, I, um, I, I, I just remember so many times people believing that, that they had to do certain things in order to win God's favor. But I'm going to tell you something. What we're talking about is not a, a synergism or synergy where it's you and God working together. I do my part, God does, does his part, and together, God and me, we save Alan Benkaff. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Everybody's clear in that? Is this what some people think? No, 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 no. Look what Paul says here in the next verse. He says, it is God working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. 
Did you get that? It's God working in you. But if you never are connected to God and you're never praying, you're never in the word allowing God to speak to you, how on earth can God work in you if you're not giving opportunity to work in your life? And this is why we teach in our discipleship here that you have to have a daily walk with God. You need to walk with God. What do we discover as we go through the Old Testament? Every single godly man or woman, it says they walked with God. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him, raptured him, took him to be with him in heaven. And we get to Noah. What did we find about Noah? He walked with God. And Samuel walked with God. And King David walked with God. And when he failed to walk with God, he committed adultery. You see what I'm saying here today? You need the power of God to work in you, to give you that desire and that strength to live the life he's calling you to live. Wow. You know, in, in this context, we have to look at the context here. In this context, the Apostle Paul is talking about unity in the church, about loving one another and being careful to, to put others first. He's talking about this, this unity, this love for one another. So in this case, he's saying that it is God who's going to give you the desire and the power to love the people you go to church with, to love the people that you live with, <laughs> to love those children of yours, those kids that you threaten <laughs> within an inch of their lives, those neighbors that play their music at two in the morning. It's God who gives you the desire and the power Remember that. Because some people say, I, I, you know, I can't live this Christian life. Of course you can't. Nobody can do it. I can't do it. And this is why we've been given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us richly, who empowers us, who gives us the desire and the power to do the will of God. So I'm going to tell you this. When you, when you decide you're going to be critical or critiquing people or putting people down or backstabbing, you've made that decision. And you can't blame God for that. It's because you haven't been abiding in the vine. My parents told me once, uh, this happened a few years ago, somebody, we were, we were having our annual business meeting. In case you don't know what that is, every year the church comes together, we look at the, the financial statements and we, we have our discussion about what, what happened in the year past and we look forward to the future. And it's a time for people to ask questions. So this one person sits down beside them and says, you may not want to sit with me because I'm going to be causing some trouble tonight. Now, is that shocking? So they, thankfully, my parents didn't tell me that until after, after the meeting. But I can tell you that the power of God is on cross church because one of the things that we are very careful to do is to protect the unity of the body of Christ. You want to see me get angry, righteously angry? Try to do something that's going to cause division or it's going to hurt this church. I love this church. I love this body. I love this family. This is my family. Don't you dare, don't you dare do anything to hurt my family. You need God to work in you to give you the desire and the power, not to critique, not to judge, not to condemn, 
One of the things I say about Cross Church all the time is this is a unique church because this is a church of people that don't, we, we, we don't gossip here. We don't attack people. We don't condemn people. We don't judge people here. This is a place where you will be loved and embraced and led to Christ. This is a great testimony. This church has a great testimony, a great witness in the community. But it can only continue with a good testimony if all of its people are being empowered by God to have the desire and the power to do the will of God. Now, doing everything without grumbling or complaining, my friends, ready for this? This is a watershed moment in your life, in your Christian life. When you learn what it is to be spirit-controlled, when you learn what it is to do everything without grumbling or complaining, this is a game changer. Because what's happening now is that you have said, Lord, you are now Lord of my life. I now am submitting to you and to your will and purpose. And when that happens, love breaks out. And everybody knows we are truly Disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, i got to move right along here. So Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. I want to take a moment to share with you a testimony about the power of the word of God to transform a life. I asked permission of my friend Samuel if I could share his story, and he graciously uh, sent me, just sent me a, a couple of paragraphs telling me about his life. We met Samuel at Tony Roma's. Some of you know that that's often where we go for lunch. Sadly, it's not open at lunchtime anymore, but anyway, we decided we were going to have our small group at Tony Roma's, and if you've been to our small groups, you know that everybody gets a little piece of paper with questions on it, with just a guided review of, of some verses. Well, after we left, somebody left the paper behind, and he picked it up, and he said, you know what? This, he's telling me after the fact, not at the moment, but after the fact. He said, I looked at it, and he said, I was praying. and saying, God, I need a church. And so he looked us up online, and he liked what he heard, and he came to church, and then COVID hit, and he was gone. Well, the cool thing is that he stuck with us. He kept listening. And, uh, and uh, he uh, told me his story. He says, for 12 years, I was an alcoholic. I tried quitting many times, but failed miserably at every attempt. And one night in my apartment about seven years ago, I was trying to stay sober. I was dry about four days, and anxiety flooded my stomach to an unbearable amount. He says, my addiction felt like it was just too much to handle, and I stood in my living room wondering with tears if I was going to die someday from alcoholism. Was it something that I would never be able to control? I paced back and forth from the living room to the front room to the front door and thoughts of running to the beer vendor just to just kept knocking around in my mind. And I stopped pacing, and I stood by my couch feeling completely hopeless. And I looked up to the ceiling, and then I cried out to the Lord, God, please, I need your strength. He says, right when those words left my mouth, all the anxiety and the desire to drink just left my body. It just vanished. 
And all I could feel was God's love. I was like, whoa, that's all I had to do this whole time? All I needed to do was just to ask you, God, for strength? Wow, God, you're the real deal. Thank you so much, God. I felt safe. I felt God was with me. And the rest of the night, I spent thinking about God and what had happened. It completely blew my mind. He says, I was raised in a Christian home, and I always believed God and Jesus were real, but I never really knew who they actually were. I wasn't a true Christian growing up. So then my best friend, Sean, randomly gave me a Bible about a month prior to that night where he met with God. And he said, I saw this Bible and I thought of you. So the next day, I picked up that Bible and I started reading the book of Matthew. And I've been sober and following Christ ever since. And it will be seven years this June. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And now he's part of our church family. That's conversion, my friends. That is the word of life being poured out into the heart of a young man. And I know he's a, he's a real student of Scripture. He's, he's challenging me all the time. He's asking me questions. Well, what about this? And what about that? And you said this, and doesn't it say that? And, I mean, he's holding firmly to the word of life. The word of God, the Bible, is the word of life. And when I read this testimony, you can imagine I was rejoicing in the same way that the Apostle Paul is rejoicing over the Philippians. The Philippians, as Paul has already stated, they're living in a perverse and crooked world. This little Philippi, it's a little, it's a little colony of Rome where everybody is pagan. Remember Paul in Acts 16, he has to cast a demon out of a girl because this girl's telling fortunes and they're making big money off this. This is the world that the Philippians are living in. It's a crooked, perverse, twisted, evil, satanic world. But the Philippian Christians are following after Jesus, and he says, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Wow. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. The Apostle Paul has found the meaning of life. And the meaning of life is to simply do God's will. Not your will, but his will be done. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? Father, we come before you now with thanksgiving in our hearts. Thankful, Father, for the work that you did in my friend Samuel. Thankful for the work that you've done in so many people in this church. I know so many stories here, Lord. And we rejoice. And our hearts are full of joy. So we recognize your spirit working and moving and touching hearts and lives and transforming people. Oh God, when we see this, we know this is supernatural and there's nothing more thrilling in this life than to see the work of God in the life of, of, of that one who was lost but is now found. God, such were every one of us here. We were lost, but you found us, Lord, and you brought us into your family. And now, God, we're praying for grace and strength. For, we're praying for that that desire and that willingness 
and that power to do your will. And your will is clear that we must love one another. Not judging, not condemning, not grumbling, not complaining, but truly love one another. God, may our church be known as a church where people will be loved. Loved unconditionally. May this be a church where the marriages are solid and people look on and say, what, is, what do they have? Let this be a church, Lord, where everyone who calls himself a Christian and a member of Cross Church will be filled with the power of God's love. So God, we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Tell the person beside you, go be a bright, shining light.